All right. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start in Colossians 2. And I say start, we're going to bounce around in several passages um, this evening. I would encourage you to take some notes, uh, at least jot down some of these references, uh, and especially for those who endeavor to be, to be soul winners and to be um, a witness. Um, tonight, we're going to talk about salvation, but not from the standpoint of, of, of even giving like a gospel sermon. But I really want to dive in a little bit and, and talk about what, what really is salvation. You know, we throw the word around, we talk about it a lot, and a lot of Christians have a really hard time even articulating it. They, you know, maybe they've, they've they heard the gospel preached, they responded, they called out to the Lord for salvation, um, and, uh, and they kind of, you know, they basically understood, understood what happened, but, but you ask them, you know, well, what does it mean? Tell it to me. And, and we get kind of stuck, like, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know how to, how to get there. And so I want to answer a few questions regarding salvation, but I really want to unpack this. And I think what we're going to find is something that we believe here as a church, uh, but it's based on Scripture, and that is um, uh, the eternal security of a believer. And that it's really rooted in understanding the gospel. If you don't believe in eternal security... I, my challenge is this. I don't think you actually understand the gospel from the Bible. Uh, and, uh, and those that believe they can lose their salvation, um, I always want to be very careful how I say this, but I've come to the conclusion that if you believe you can lose your salvation, you might not even be saved because I don't know what gospel you believe. And, uh, and I know that sounds very harsh because there are those under, in Christian denominations that believe you can lose your salvation, but you've got you to gotta pull it back a little bit and ask them, well, what is your salvation based upon? And uh, we're hoping to answer some of those questions tonight. But look at Colossians 2. I'll read one scripture and we'll pray. Um, and then we'll, uh, I want to share several passages with you. Of course, Brother Connolly uh, touched on uh, uh, this verse um, Wednesday night. And uh, so I'm going to correct him uh, in front of you all. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. But I want to zero in on this, uh, this one verse and kind of look at what it's talking about here. Well, the Bible says this in Colossians 2. Look at verse number 13. And it says, and you being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, have he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And we'll start with this verse, but let's have a word of prayer this evening. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. Thank you for these that are here and, and coming out on a Sunday evening, Lord. I pray that uh, we'd have a, uh, an encouraging uh, Bible study, but as we compare Scripture with Scripture, uh, help us to understand this possibly the most important issue to understand from the scriptures uh, to not only for our own security and our own uh, confidence in our salvation but as we share it uh, with others lord help us to really settle this issue of uh, really the theological implications of salvation and um, and what all that entails help us tonight lord as we uh, maneuver through the scriptures i pray that you guide and direct in jesus name we pray amen this passage starts off it says you being dead and he's going to describe why you're dead. What is it that makes you and I dead? It says, dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh. There's two facets to that. One is sins because of the sin. And we'll look at what really we're talking about when it comes to sin. Because of our sin, we are condemned. We are alienated from God. But the second facet is uh, to make it even more condemnable, if I could say it that way, is you and I as non-Jews, as Gentiles, we don't even get to partake in the covenants of Israel, the uncircumcision of the flesh. What was that? That was a sign of the covenants between God and his people. 
So, so in a sense, you and I were born in a, in a double-condemned situation. We have sin, and we're not even a part of God's promises with Israel. Okay, And that's a very incredible place to be. But notice what it says there. So you're dead in sin, and you're dead because you're outside of God's covenants. So how does he quicken you? It says, hath quickened. That word quickened is an old English word. It means to be made alive. Quickened together with him, with Christ. How? Having forgiven you all trespasses. How many trespasses are you forgiven of? All. Okay. Now let me ask this question. Are you quickened if there are any trespasses left unforgiven? You can't be. Because sin is what kills what did God say to Adam? We'll look at this verse in a minute, but he said, In the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely what? Die. From one sin. One sin. So the question is, how many sins can I have in my life? How many sins can I have unforgiven and still be right with God? None. That's a very important thing to understand because if we're not careful, we approach this thing as as um, I got my salvation, but now I need to make sure that I am I'm continually getting sins forgiven. Just like in the Old Testament, they'd have to continually be bringing sacrifices and continually be slaying lambs. That's the difference, let me just say, between atonement and propitiation. Um, he is the propitiation for our sins, the complete final sacrifice for our sins. And so I want to unpack that a little bit. And this is a topic, I uh, approach it from different angles, but this is a topic I, I, I try to hit on at least, you know, maybe three or four times a year because it's so important how easy it is for us to drift into traditionalism, how easy it is for our hearts to even get cold and stale. But I think if we keep this idea fresh and understand how accepted you and I are before God and how uh, our standing is before God, it keeps, our, it keeps that fire in our hearts kindled. It will keep us encouraged and going forward uh, with the Lord. And so I want to answer a couple questions. Um, uh, and, uh, well, I'll list those questions in a minute. But, but one of the introductory questions is, is, what is the reach of the gospel when it comes to my life? How deep does it go and how thorough does it, does it, uh, does it impact me? Why is it that you and I as believers, as, as, uh, as, as Christians, if, if you would, if you do believe this doctrine, the question is, why do you believe uh, some people term it as once saved, always saved. Um, I just call it eternal security. <laughs> but, you know, once saved, always saved is a thing that's thrown around. Usually it's thrown around in a negative context when you hear that phrase. Oh, those people in there are once saved, always saved. You know, I have to ask them, well, what kind of salvation do you have? Um, and so do we believe that? Here's a question. Do we believe that because we're a Baptist church, because that is a Baptist doctrine? Or do we believe that because that's what the Bible teaches? You see, and by the way, I will say this. The Bible must trump anything that we would connect to anything else. So, so if we say, well, we're this because of we're Baptist, or we're this because we're whatever it is, American, uh, well, you know, if the Bible goes against it or if the Bible corrects it, we must side with Scripture. Okay? By the way, that's why we're an autonomous church, because we don't have to take it up the chain to some, some organization. We don't have to take it up the chain to some convention. Uh, we look at the scriptures, and we as a church say, you know what? I think we're off on this. Now that we've looked at the Bible and further examination, I think we should adjust fire on this thing. And there may be some issues that we come across. So we realize, you know what? Uh, I think we, got, we found a tradition on this area, and the Bible says something else. And, and we can adjust fire. We are an independent church, okay? 
And so that's important. But, uh, but, but I want to I unpack this. I hope we believe what we believe because it's what the Bible teaches versus what some creed says somewhere or what statement of faith says somewhere, you see. Um, I remember uh, years ago, um, there was a, uh, well, he's, he's now my, my brother-in-law, uh, but he was interested in my sister, and he was going to a, a Lutheran church, and I was interested. I thought, well, let's see what this particular Lutheran church believes. So I got on their website and checked out their doctrinal statement, and, um, and it was interesting. Under every doctrinal point, it said, uh, tell them I'll call him back. Uh, it, said, uh, it said, Martin Luther believed this. About this topic, Martin Luther believed this. And about this topic, Martin Luther believed this. And that's what the whole statement of faith was about. And I thought to myself, who cares what Martin Luther believed? What does the Bible say? You know? And uh, by the way, don't worry, he doesn't go to that church anymore. He's going to a good, good, solid church now. But anyways, I remember looking at that thinking, that's a very strange statement of faith. You know? Uh, talk about man following, talk about traditions of men or, or the, the, the traditions passed down by your fathers, as Peter calls it. And so, um, so I want to make sure that we're getting it from the scriptures. Uh, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. We throw the word gospel around all the time, and so I like to go here because Paul is going to declare the gospel as you and I preach it, as you and I declare it, as he declared it, and, uh, and, uh, because the word gospel was, has been used a lot of times even in scripture before it got to the place where you, the gospel you and I refer to. Okay. By the way, uh, for my Bible students out there, what does the word gospel mean? Good news. There's lots of good news out there, isn't there? You know, um, uh, I'm waiting for that phone call from Nick that says Emily's Emily delivered the child, and what? Else? And I would say that's good news, right? That's that's gospel. Now we don't use that word in that sense anymore because now it's come to take its own meaning. Kind of like the word church takes a specific meaning now, where it used to be much broader meaning. But uh, but in Scripture, there's many gospels in that sense. There's the, you know, there's, the, there's good news. There's the gospel of the kingdom. There was, if you would, gospel even in the Old Testament. Uh, what is it? It's the good news that was to be delivered. And so when we talk about the gospel, usually what we're talking about today is the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. Um, and so Paul's going to unpack that because there's, there's much debate about that. Even today, it's funny the things we'll chalk up as gospel. Um, I'll hear, I'll hear, uh, I remember, I remember I was preaching somewhere, and they said, uh, yeah, we like to hear different preachers, and, uh, you know, everyone just kind of has a little, they're a little bit different take on how they present the gospel. And, and I can't remember exactly how he worded it, but basically chalked up preaching as equivalent of, you know, whatever it is you're preaching in Scripture, it's gospel. Well, not necessarily, right? I, I hope it's all good news, by the way, but, but um, uh, not in every message necessarily is a gospel message, right? Um, and so, but anyways, let's look at this, 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse number 3. Paul is saying to this church, and he says, For I declare unto you, he's about to speak something unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Of course, we know that Paul received this by revelation. He was not taught this by the other apostles. He uh, emphasizes that in other places. Uh, it was by revelation of Jesus Christ. He received this message from the Lord himself. So I'm going to declare to you that which also I received, how that Christ died for what? Our sins. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. By the way, where's the authority in those phrases? According to the scriptures. Very good. Um, that's the authority of it. And so, uh, so, so as we look at this, what is the gospel? He died for this purpose, for our sins, 
was buried, rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, right? And really, you could say it this way, as, as it goes on beyond there, it says, um, and then he was seen of Cephas and of the twelve, and after that he was seen of about 500 at once. So you can look at this and say, okay, well, he, was, he, he died for our sins. The proof that he died was he was buried. But then he rose again. The proof that he rose again is that he was seen of many, right? That's, that's a, it's a very important aspect when we look at this because, uh, you know, uh, I love what he says. He's, um, uh, look at uh, verse number... Verse number six, after that he was seen above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep, or some have died. At the time of this writing, he said, there was 500 at one viewing, one, one appearing of Jesus, and you can go ask them. You see, uh, what an awesome, awesome testimony. What, a, what an awesome proof of the resurrection of Christ. Paul was challenging the skeptics. Hey, go ask them. Go ask him. So what is the gospel? It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ according to the scriptures. For what purpose? To what end? For our sins. That's very important. Because our sins is put us at enmity with God. We are, we are alienated from God. But, uh, but it really goes even deeper than that. So I want to I answer these four questions. Here are the questions. What is salvation? Why do we need salvation? What's the provision for salvation? And how do we obtain it? How do we obtain salvation? Because I think usually what ends up happening is we have bits and pieces of each of these, but we don't know how to connect all the dots. And especially when it comes to sharing it with somebody else. Do you believe what the Bible says, that there is no there is salvation? Um, neither is there... <laughs> help me with this. Uh, uh, neither is salvation, uh, uh, was it, by any other name. Thank you. There is no name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Is there any salvation apart from the Lord Jesus Christ? No. So if you believe the salvation that you have is exclusive, is narrow, then, then you better understand it so you can share it. By the way, is, is, is God desire that this be a small, exclusive little club? I mean, He wants all to come to Christ. He wants all to come to the knowledge uh, of salvation. And so, uh, so we, as his ambassadors, uh, need, to, need to know uh, what that is. So what is salvation? We might want to say it this way, saved from what? Because salvation means, the implication is I need to be saved from something, right? If I'm drowning in a swimming pool, I need salvation, do I not? What do I need saved from? Drowning, right? And who's likely going to be my savior? A lifeguard, right? Or someone else who can, who can help me. And uh, I remember when I was a kid, I got rescued in the ocean by a lifeguard. And I, was so, I was pulled so far out that I couldn't even see people on the shore. And I was praying, Lord, if you're out there, you know, send somebody. And the next thing I know, a guy starts coming into view, and he rescues me. I was caught in a riptide, and I was being pulled. So, I was so far out there. I was where the whales and sharks were, I'm sure of it. And uh, I was getting so scared. I was on a boogie board. I was trying to keep my feet and arms out of the water because I just felt like I was going to get bit, right? <laughs> but I was terrified. You know what? For that day, that man was my savior. But that's lowercase s. That's small savior, right? What is it you and I need saving from? So I want to answer that. And um, I'm not going to take you to all these passages, but if you want to jot some things down, Revelation 20 and verse number 11 and 12. And I saw a great white throne. This is what we call the great white throne judgment. And him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the things 
written in uh, which were written in those book in the books. And get this now. Uh, let me back up. I kind of messed that up. It says uh, the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the things which were written in the books according to their works. That's kind of interesting, right? So it says this that that. Um, uh, um, it talks about the books were open, there was a book of life, the dead were judged of things in the books, and then it mentions their works. So we don't know everything about these books. We know one of the books is called a book of life. Um, I, I believe, personally, by this passage, another book is a book, a record of their life for them to be judged according to their works. I think the other book that might be open is this book right here, the Word of God, judged according to the Word of God. And if you jump down a couple of verses, and it says, Whosoever is not found written in the book of life, one of the books that's specifically mentioned, was cast into the lake of fire. So we see there's a judgment according to their works and a judgment according to a book. There's a, you know, by the way, did you know there's a guest list in heaven? If your name's not on the list, you don't get in. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. If you didn't make the list, you don't get in. And uh, there's, a very, <laughs> there's a very strict security uh, in, in heaven, all right? Uh, you're not going to sneak in any other way. And so, so we see here there's a judgment of sin. There is, uh, there is a list. So, again, we're just trying to unpack this. What, what do I need saving from? What is salvation? Um, Matthew 8, 13 and 22, each talk about Jesus giving parables, and he, and he keeps referencing this, these concepts keep coming up. Outer darkness gnashing of teeth, a furnace of fire. By the way, it's interesting. There are people out there that say the Bible doesn't actually teach of a place called hell. Uh, by the way, a simple word search. If you have a Bible app or something, a simple word search for hell will say otherwise, okay? I think it's like 500 some odd times the word hell shows up. I think there's, th uh, don't, don't quote me on this, but I think there's three different words uh, in the Hebrew and Greek for, for hell. But, uh, but let me just say this. They all speak of torment. And it speaks of a place uh, where the worm dieth not, where the fire is not quenched. The idea of there's burning without being consumed. Because, by the way, when, how does a fire go out? It runs out of fuel, right? There's, there's really three parts to fire, right? You need heat, you need fuel. What's the other part? And oxygen, okay. <laughs> so there's air. Uh, uh, but what makes it go out? It's not being fed by one of those things, Okay. And so if it, does not, uh, it isn't, you know, does not stop burning, the idea is whatever it is that's burning doesn't stop being consumed. That's incredible. By the way, we talk about eternal life. You know, in, in a sense, hell, there's eternal life there. We call it eternal death, but you're never consumed. It never ends. The worm dieth not. Well, what creates worms? I believe that's a word picture for rotting flesh. And so you're burning without being consumed. You're rotting without being consumed. I mean, this is not a good place. In Luke 11, Jesus gives a very vivid picture of hell, and he talks about a rich man that goes to hell and a, and a, and a poor beggar man that goes to, to paradise. And, uh, and there's a great gulf fixed between the two of them. And what's interesting is it says this. Uh, Jesus is giving the account, and he says, and that man, he says, he says uh, in hell, Jesus, by the way, settles the debate right there. In hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, seeing Abraham afar off. 
that word there for torment, it's a very vivid picture. A very, a very, it's really a vile word. It's what we would maybe even refer to as a cuss word. Some words that we use in our language are kind of reserved for a very vile description of something. And so if we use it in any other context, we consider it a curse word. One of those words is in the Bible, by the way, is the word damnation. If you use that word flippantly, we, we chalked it up as a curse word. We probably shouldn't use that word. But what does that mean? It's, it's judgment. It's God's judgment. We do, same, same thing with the word hell. Listen, you don't want to wish hell upon anybody. And yet we throw it around. We'll tell people to go there. If you understood what you're saying, you'd realize that's a word we should not say. Well, that's kind of this word torment that Jesus used there. It's very rare to uh, showing up in, the, in Koine Greek, but it was describing the torture uh, of, that the Romans would use when they would torture maybe a prisoner of war. And one of the things that they would do in torturing somebody is they would take them to a wheat threshing floor. But they had a different use for this threshing floor. They would lay down that, that, that prisoner and they'd put their arm down on the ground like this. And they would take a three to 500 pound stone that would use to thresh the wheat and they would start ro- rocking it over, first of all, the hands of that prisoner. And the first pass, nails pop off, uh, 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 knuckles crushed. And by the way, there's a lot of nerve endings in the tips of the fingers, right? That's the word that he's describing, being in torments, this kind of intensity. And you know what's interesting is no matter what culture you're in, there's a universal response of the body when the tips of your fingers get crushed. Anybody know what happens? Your body tenses up and you look straight up. This man lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And he saw Abraham afar off. That's Jesus' depiction of hell. Just a word picture that he tries to get them to understand, to get them to, understand, you know, to see this. By the way, it's interesting how Jesus gave more detail about hell than he ever did about heaven. I wonder why. Oh, we shouldn't be telling about people about hell. We just need to tell them how wonderful heaven is because so they'll, they'll want to go. Listen, you don't have to convince somebody they want to go to heaven. That's like trying to convince somebody you really want to go to Disneyland. You know, a kid. <laughs> trying to, an adult, you might have to convince, right? But a kid... You know, uh, they're, they're sold, right? But, you, but I think the Lord wanted to warn us about this place. So what are we saved from? Why do we need salvation? Because our sin has condemned us. So what are we saved from? We're saved from the torments of hell. We're saved from the wrath of God, which we'll get into that a little bit more uh, later. We're saved from these things, but why do we need it? Because of our sins, right? He died for our sins. Our sin has condemned us. Genesis 2 and verse number 17, the Bible says, But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God talking to Adam, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That's what God told Adam. In the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now let me ask you this question. Did Adam die the day he ate the food? Not physically, but something changed. When Adam ate the food. It's interesting, I don't have time to, to dive too deep into this, but you know, it's funny how we always talk about, you know, we're all made in God's image and, and all this stuff. Adam was made perfect, was he not? God had put his image in Adam. God reiterates that in Genesis chapter 5, that when he created them, male and female, and, uh, and he called them the name Adam, and he made them in his image. 
But if you go to Genesis 5, Adam and Eve have a child. And here's what the Bible says. It says, in the day Adam was created, he made him in his image. But then Adam had a son created in his image, in Adam's image, in the fallen image, in the imperfect image. I will say it this way, in the dead image. Something died that day. The ability to commune with God, the closeness with God, the separation of God now has taken place, with God has taken place. And if you stay in that state, the ultimate end will be what? Death. An eternal death. Like a fire kind of death. Torment kind of a death. Look at uh, Romans 5 with me, if you would. We'll look at several verses in Romans 5. So here's Adam. You know, Adam and Eve, when we get to heaven, I think they're going to get some looks from us. <laughs> you did this. But if it wasn't them, it would be someone else, right? It probably would have been me. In Romans 5, look at verse number 12. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world. Now, who's that? Adam. We just read that, right? And death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. See, it's a genetic thing. It's been passed on to all men. Look at verse 13. For until the law, sin was not in the world. That's an interesting phrase. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. So you might think, well, then why were they dying? Why did people die if there was no law given yet? Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, even though there was no law given, Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Moses was the, the law, right? It was the giving of the law. Even over, uh, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that is to come. So Adam, did Adam have a law? Yeah. He had one law. And he broke it. But what's interesting is from Adam to Moses, there was really no articulated law. There were some things that were given to individuals, right? Uh, Noah was given the instruction when he got off the ark. Uh, hey, if anybody sheds innocent blood, his blood will be shed. There's a law there. But what if somebody doesn't know Noah? As they had kids and kids and kids, and this is all got passed on, things get jumbled and things get spread out. There was no, there was no organized law like Israel had. So from, from, from Adam to Moses... There was, no, there was no real body of law that we could really point to. What is it that God expects from man? Nevertheless, death reigned. Why? Because we were born in sin. You see, it's not just, oh, I told a lie, or it's not just, you know, you know sometimes we'll use the Ten Commandments to show somebody that they are a sinner according to God's standard. But can I just say this? You and I, were born, we're born condemned. We're on the wrong team. We're on the wrong side of this thing. We're born dead. You might think of it this way, we're stillborn. We're stillborn. We have a dead spirit living with us. So we're born at odds with God. David said it this way in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Folks, that's how it starts. That's where the beginning took place. So we see uh, what is salvation, or what is, what is, uh, why do we need salvation? Because uh, quite frankly, you and I deserve hell. You know, what is, um, uh, what are the questions I asked? What is salvation saved from what? 
Why do we need salvation? Because we are at odds with God. And what is the provision for salvation? We're still in Romans 5. Look, let's jump back to verse number 6. For when we were yet without strength, strength for what? Strength to save ourselves. Strength to, to, to be right with God, because that's what this whole chapter is about, is being reconciled to God. When we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for who? The ungodly. Or you might say it this way, those without God. Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. So he gives kind of an example. Like if you, if you have a friend who's a righteous man and he's facing death, you might say, he does not deserve death. I'm going to jump in. I'll give my life for him. Some would do that, right? And then it goes on. Um, uh, Yet peradventure for a good man, some would dare to die. But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners. Can I say it this way? While we were not worth saving. Christ died for us. Wow. He made the provision for salvation. That for us, that's that substitutionary aspect. He died in my place. That's the word picture that's being described here, that you might uh, die for somebody or in their place. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. So when Paul said, this is the gospel I declare unto you, how that Christ died for our sins, can I say it this way? He died in my place. He died in your place. By the way, as a child, growing up in church, that was, this, that was the aspect of salvation I completely missed. I was always struggling with this idea, you know, and I was in church my whole life. I was, I was in church nine months before I was even born. That's how faithful I was. And I missed it. It took me 19 years to get this into my thick skull. The substitutionary aspect of Christ, of His death, burial, and resurrection. He took my place. I was deserving to die. I remember asking, why in the world, why does God, why, 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 did, why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just forgive my sins? I, I couldn't grasp the concept. There was a substitute. It wasn't until much later. And, uh, and, and, and so uh, let's continue. It says this, but God commanded his love toward us while we were sinners. Christ died for us. Much more than... Being now, so we were without strength, we were without Christ, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from, uh, um, from wrath through Him. Being justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath. These things we were talking about, the things that we deserve, the wrath of God, um, uh, will be saved from that. Verse number 10, for if when we were enemies, why were we God's enemies? Because we were born in sin. You see, we, we started off as God's enemies. Think about that. That was the starting place. When we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. What an awesome thought. Look at verse number 15. Let's jump down to 15. Again, we're talking about Adam and the second Adam. Verse 15. But now as the offense, the offense of Adam so also the free gift. For if through the offense of one, that would be Adam, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of, by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. So one man condemned an entire human race, one man offers a free gift to be passed on to many. 
they're both talking about this idea of imputation to be put into their account, verse number 16. And not as it, uh, not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. So one created condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Think about this aspect now. One sin, think about it. One sin condemned an entire race. One act of obedience covered many, 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 many sins. Isn't that awesome? Um, by the way, when you, when you unpack this, you start to realize more and more, man could not have come up with this idea because <laughs> we wouldn't have come up with it this way. It's so contrary to our own understanding and our own value systems. Um, but the free gift of, uh, is of many offenses unto um, justification. For, by, for if by one man's death, or excuse me, one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. What an awesome thought. We've seen words righteous show up a lot. We've seen the word justified, justification show up. Uh, verse 1, if we jump back to the beginning of the chapter, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word justified, I love the word. It means this. It's got the same root word for the word righteous. And it means this, to render righteous, to declare, to pronounce uh, one to be just, to be made right. Here's the awesome thing. In Christ, you and I are made right with God. How many times do we hear that phrase? Preach to Christians. You need to get right with God. You need to get right with God. You need to get right with God. If you are saved, you are right with God an awesome thought. Now, there may be things that come up in your life that you definitely need to repent of, that you definitely need to, 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 you know, uh, to deal with before God, but, but let me just say, if you died in your rebellion, if you died in that state, if you are saved, you are right with God. Hey, the Bible talks about it. there'll be loss of rewards. There will be a judgment seat of Christ, and, and I, think, I think we have a hard time wrapping our mind around this because we're so values-driven, like, like cause and effect, and, and what is my motivation if there's not a punishment and attached, and we're kind of, we, we, we wrestle with this idea because it so goes against our flesh. But is the gift of God a true gift, or is it earned? We have to answer that question. How many works must be done to be saved? None. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. So, how many works are required then? If it takes none to be saved, how many works are required to stay saved? How many negative works does it take to be unsaved? See, there's both sides of that coin. You see what I'm saying? And so, so it's very important to understand this. So what does that mean? I can just go and live however I want? You can try that. God loves you so much, He's going to chasten you. He's going to throw you over his knee. 
Give you a good whooping. Have you ever had a good whooping from the Lord? Yeah. But he loves you. You're his own. And he will not deny his own. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're made right. We're declared righteous. We started in uh, 1 Corinthians 5. I want to look at that again. No, not 5, 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He paid the price that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So here's the question. So we understand what is salvation. We understand why we need salvation. We understand the provision of salvation. What's the provision of salvation? Christ died for our sins. He is a propitiation, the acceptable sacrifice as he laid himself down, the innocent dying for the guilty. As one man, sin condemned the whole race, and his sin, Adam's sin, is imputed to us, so the righteousness of one becomes imputed to us. So here's the question. If it's imputed, we saw that in, in Romans 5, it, sa it says uh, um, this justification and this, uh, this, this is passed on to all men. Here's the question. When it says all men, is that everybody? la di da -di everybody? Is that all people? Or is it for those who have received this gift? Because it talks about it being a gift. Just like in 1 John, it says how Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. Does that mean the whole world is saved? Do we believe in universalism? So how does one obtain this, is the question. How does one obtain it? See, we know the facts of the gospel... But how is it internalized, or how is it imputed, put into our account? That's what that word means. <clears throat> and what happens to us when it is? So I'm going to answer those questions, and then we'll be done. And I hope this is helpful. This is kind of a little bit of a theological discussion tonight about salvation. Let's think through these things together. And if you can see it on the pages of Scripture, I tell you what, it's going to, it's, it's going to uh, bolster your confidence in the Scriptures and in your salvation. In, in what God has done for you. Look at Romans uh, chapter 10, if you would. Romans chapter 10. And let's start in verse number 9. It says, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is over all, uh, same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, before you think it's just about a magic prayer or words that you say, look at the next verse. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? Have you received the message? Have you taken it in? Do you believe the record of Christ? Do you believe that he is the Son of God and that he is Lord? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins, took your place? 
do you believe that he rose again the third day, fulfilling that justification? By the way, if all he did was died in your place, that may take away your sins, but that does not justify you. Declare you righteous. It was the resurrection of Christ that completed the transaction by which we are justified. Look at, look at Ephesians chapter 1. We're answering how do we obtain it, and then what happens to us when, we, when it's been internal, internalized. Look at Ephesians 1. I went the wrong way, so you guys got a head start on me. Ephesians 1. What? <laughs> 239. Ephesians 1, look at verse number 7. In whom, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the rich, the riches of his grace. Uh, we, boy, we can say amen to that verse. That is a powerful verse. According to the riches of his grace. Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. We unpacked that verse a few weeks ago, that, that God had purposed the means of salvation, not the who of salvation. Verse number 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. We saw praise of His glory show up a couple times there. So here's what happens. When you got saved, you trusted when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when the gospel was declared unto you, when it was presented to you, by faith you received it, you trusted in it, and what happened? Uh, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. By the way, when did the Holy Spirit take up residence inside you? The moment you first believed. Amen. And by the way, it's interesting, it calls it an earnest. Anybody know what an earnest payment is? It's like a security payment, like a down payment on a house, right? And so God doesn't want to waste an investment. He's going to come back and finish his purchase. He's going to come back and take us home. Amen? And uh, that's uh, <laughs> an awesome thought. Look at, look at chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened. Made alive. We started with Colossians 2, right, about being quickened together with him. Why? Because we were dead in trespasses and sins. Why? Because, because Adam sinned, and the day he ate thereof, he died. And everyone that is born after him died, is dead. How could they be born and they're dead? They're spiritually dead. So, in you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Where in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Before you got saved, what was your value system? Before you got saved, who'd you live for? Yeah. By the way, there are some really good lost people. 
that live good moral lives that are very selfless. But even that, what is their standard based upon? An arbitrary standard of right and wrong. So, so, so they're still living for something else. So he says this, that he quickened you, who in time past were not the children of God. You're the children of disobedience. By the way, that's a big one right there. Don't you understand we're all God's children? No. If you're all God's children, then why do we need to be reconciled? You know, why do we need to come to him? We've been cast off. No, no, the Bible uses the word adoption. We must be brought in by adoption. Until then, you are the child of disobedience. You are the child of your father, the devil, that he said to those Pharisees, and the lust of your father will you do. See, we're born on the wrong side. So he has to adopt us. And he says this, uh, verse 3, Among whom also we all had our conversation, our lifestyle, in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's the nature of us, children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, listen to that, even when we were dead in sin, where did I, I lost my spot. Oh, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved. How are you saved? By grace. What does grace mean? It's undeserved. It's undeserved. By grace are you saved through faith. I have to believe it. And that not of yourselves, not something you do, it is a gift of God. Gift implies it's not worked for, it's not earned. Not of works, lest any man should boast. You and I, when we get to heaven, there'll be nothing we can boast about but the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, if I'm going to boast in something, I'm going to boast in the cross, which is something that's to be um, looked down upon. That's a sign of weakness, a sign of defeat. He says, that's what I'm going to boast in the cross of Christ. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus unto good works. Let me jump over to, um, oh, let me continue. Uh, to good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at, the time, uh, at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus uh, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and have broken down the middle wall partition between us. Let me pause right there. You say, what in the world is it saying there? Remember in Colossians, we said, you, uh, He quickened you together who were dead in trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of the flesh. You and I who are alienated from God, who was God's covenants through? Israel. Who were God's chosen people? Israel. What is it with everybody else? Dogs. If you look at Scripture, you know, through that lens, you start to see there's, there's these two different groups of people that Paul deals a lot with. And so what's he saying? He says this, that middle wall of partition. What was that wall of partition that he's referring to? That was the temple. In the temple, G Gentiles were allowed to come through Israel to worship God. But even if they became proselyte Jews, they could only go so far. 
there was a middle wall partition that separated the court of the Gentiles from the sacrifices of the Jews. And he said, I even tore down that. So no longer is there Jew or Gentile. No longer are you strangers, but you are now made fellow heirs, fellow citizens in the commonwealth of Israel. You've been brought together called God's people. Now, lest we get all that confused, that doesn't mean that we become Jews. We're not Jews. God still has a plan for Jews. God still has a plan for his people. That's completely separate. For more information on that, turn to Romans 9 through 11, right? But um, at another time. Um, but it's important to understand, let me just say, it's the fullness of salvation. Are you working a religion? Doing this and doing that or not doing this and not doing that, abstain from this, abstain from that, you know, to uh, try to make sure I'm maintaining this relationship and trying to, to get on good standing with God. By the way, it's amazing how certain things creep in. We were talking earlier about, uh, about the Lord's Supper, which we, we do need to plan one again soon. But it's, it's funny how some people really have an issue. Like, how come we don't do communion every week? And I'll ask this question. Why is that so important to you? Say, so why do you ask that question? Because some hold on to it like it bears some kind of grace, some kind of meriting or aiding in salvation. Where did that come from? Oh, that was passed on by the Catholics. Thank you, guys. And it crept into Protestant churches, and it's kind of spread. No, no, it's a memorial. It's a remembrance. It's a special time. It is, but it, it, you know, if I never take communion again the rest of my life, it didn't change my standing with the Lord. You know, it's interesting, the, 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 the traditions we put on there. Can you be right with God and never enter into a church service again? Yeah, you don't lose your salvation. Now, I'll tell you what, your relationship with God's going to struggle. Uh, on your end, your walk with the Lord's really going to struggle. But are you unsaved? No. And, you know, we love to throw, like, really extreme things at it. You know, what if I murder somebody? Is that a sin? Did he die for your sins? Again, there are consequences, but he died for your sins. Here's a big one. What if I pray to be unsaved? I don't want to be saved anymore. First of all, if you, truly, if you, if you understood salvation, I don't think you can pray the prayer, honestly. But suppose you did pray that prayer. Would renouncing Christ be a sin? Did Christ die for the sin? Jesus said about them being in his hand, he said, no man can pluck you out of my hand. My father, which is greater than I, no man should be able to pluck you out of my father's hand. Are you a man or woman? Do you fall into the category of being able to pluck yourself out of his hand? Yeah, I can't do that. And then furthermore, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We're thrice secure in the father's hand. Such an awesome thought. So if you received grace, not being deserved, how could you lose it if you never deserved it in the first place? See, we're trying to unpack this biblically, and let's think logically as well. So if all of our sins have been forgiven, if we are brought into the commonwealth of Israel, as I just showed you, and made His people... If he hath promised us his spirit until the day of redemption, Ephesians 4.30, if he has promised to never leave us nor forsake us, Hebrews 
then you are secure in Christ. That is awesome. See, when you got saved, grab a hold of this. When you got saved, you were not put on probation. What happens when someone's on probation if they got out of jail, out of prison? They have to check in with their, their parole officer, right? What happens if they slip up? Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. When you got saved, let me just say this. You are not put on parole. You received a full pardon. Sometimes we treat salvation like this. I got saved and God wiped the slate clean. See, the problem with a clean slate is it can get dirty again. God did not wipe the slate clean. God threw the slate away. He took our sins and buried them in the deepest sea. Separated from us as far as the east is from the west. Never to be remembered again. Now, how many sins did he do that for? All of them. It doesn't even make sense if it's less than all. Because then what do you do tomorrow? I got to get saved again. I got to get saved again. I got to get saved again. And some people treat it that way. They don't understand. Well, how in the world could he have paid for my future sins I haven't committed yet? Well, how many of them were future when he died for them? You talk about the power of God. He paid for my sins 2,000 years before I was even born. Wow, what a God. What a salvation. See, that's who we are in Christ. So I think it's very important. I don't know about you, but, but sometimes I, I'm kind of a thinker. I'm analytical, and I, I want to make sure I'm understanding this whole thing. What is salvation? Why do I need it? How is it provided? And how do I obtain it? So if you can answer those questions, you can share the gospel with somebody. I know I went way beyond the Romans road. And you don't have to go through all the verses I went through. In fact, I could probably preach the same message tomorrow with a whole fresh list of verses. But I'm just saying, you need to know where you're going with your message. What are you trying to prove to them? What are you trying to show them? Folks, we are, we are born condemned. And Christ died to redeem us and bring us to himself. What an awesome, awesome thought. What an awesome God. So hope that was a help to you. I hope you jotted some verses down. Go study those. Go, go search them out. And, uh, of course, if you have any questions, uh, you know, be glad to try to help you with, with some of those. But, uh, any, any questions immediately come to mind of what we've covered? Okay. Why don't, we, uh, why don't we spend a few moments in prayer?